Can you take me through a typical day? Of the orchestra, yes. Um, it started off by some of us taking the music stands and the chairs to the place where we were supposed to play. You're listening to State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Jet Hayward. Then come back to the block. Then we were given some tepid liquid, which I don't know what it was, what you can call it. It's supposed to be called coffee. And once we finished playing the marches, we marched back to the block, and then certain people had to go and fetch the chairs and the stands, and then we started to rehearse all day. This episode is about survival. Quick warning, some of these stories are pretty intense. If you're not up for that right now, maybe save this episode for later. Learn new pieces and uh, and the same procedure in the evening. We had to go out with the stands and sit there, usually for about an hour or an hour and a half. Maybe longer, I mean, my time, uh, remembering for time is not good. And uh, play marches again for the people to come back. It was our job. As long as they wanted us, they won't put us in the gas chamber. This is how I can basically uh, describe it. You know, every one of us was more or less indispensable. Whilst the the group of people who worked outside uh, carrying stones, I don't know what, doesn't matter whether you are alive or not. If you're dead, somebody else will do the job. If I'm dead, there was nobody else to play the cello. It's as basic as that, you know. I mean, I don't think you have to give a, a lot of interpretation into that. They wanted an orchestra, they need an orchestra. We were there at their disposal. We had singers, we had, uh, we had violins, mandolins, guitars, a couple of flutes and accordions, you know, a crazy combination of uh, people. Yeah. Well, how did you feel when you were playing pieces of music you knew so well? Dear interviewer, these questions I can't answer. What do you mean? What would I feel like? What there? How can I know now what I felt like? This is an impossible question to answer because I think basically we had turned off feelings. Feelings were a total luxury in those days. What do you feel like in sitting in Birkenau with the chimney smoking in front of you, you playing music, Dr. Mengele, a mass murderer, comes in, not just a murderer but the man who experimented on on human beings, and asked to hear a piece of music, Träumerei by Schumann, you know, what did I feel like? I felt nothing. Let that go over as well, you know. I think if you indulge in feelings in a place like Birkenau, you would not survive. You were just like a robot. Today you're alive, tomorrow I don't know. I think that is probably the most honest answer I can give you. And when you hear that piece of music, for example, doesn't now, mean anything. You know, I don't. People often ask me often that question. I do not relate the music that I heard there, or did there, or played there with anything. Anything that is going on now. These are two different worlds. They do not mix. They do not mix. Not for me, anyway. Thank you. 
recording of Anita Lasker-Walfish, a surviving member of the Women's Orchestra at Auschwitz. It was recorded in the year 2000, when she was 75. This year, she spoke on the floor of the German parliament to mark the 73rd anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. In this episode, along with our stories, you'll also hear pieces of archival sound. When we were looking for stories about survival, sometimes we came across pieces of tape like this one that felt like preserved fragments of another time that remind us that survival is sometimes just a piece of something that's left behind. Your third child was actually born in hospital. Yes. And that was in the middle of all these uh, terrible um, air raids and all of that. So I don't think that was what you might call normal. Imagine our world without sun. Male emperor penguins are facing the nearest that exists on planet Earth, winter in Antarctica. It's continuously dark and temperatures drop to minus 70 degrees centigrade. Because again, we were in the middle of day raids, and in fact, um, the alarm was going as, uh, as she was being born, and the all clear <laughs> sounding as, as she actually came into the world. So that was something, but it was a perfectly horrible week there because the babies had to. I would say keep your head down. It's only for 10 months. I could do anything for 10 months. I would say be careful. The system that you're growing up in is designed to destroy you. And um, yeah, there was an air raid absolutely you know, twice a day and, and every night it was really quite awful. The penguins stay when all other creatures have fled because each guards a treasure. A single egg resting on the top of its feet and kept warm beneath the downy bulge of its stomach. Because it was a physical just place that my childhood kind of lived. Uh, I liked just knowing it was here. Well, I remember I was with you guys for a second and I think I went over to look at the toy store, the KB toy. Mm -hmm. And um, we got lost and I was looking around and I thought, uh oh, I'm in trouble now, you know, and then I, I thought I was never going to see my family again. I was really scared, you know. I was scared to death. We all were. We were all scared. None of us wanted to go to jail. And so we walked up Van Ness on this glorious, beautiful spring morning, and we saw our city die. <clears throat> it, was, it was something to see. The great, heavy, slow rolls of smoke that were joining hands as they went up. We... All of us here now 
are living through a certain kind of turmoil which endangers all of our relationships. Chapter 1, Santa Rosa In the summer of 2017, wildfires tore through the northern part of the San Francisco Bay Area, burning down entire neighborhoods. Producer Bella Lazareski grew up in Santa Rosa, one of the towns hit hardest by the fires. In this story, she returns to her childhood home. Just stepping on the chart, these looks like these look like pieces of wood from the gazebo my dad built. It's one of the first things he did because they moved here and they had little kids. I'm walking through the remains of my childhood home, which burned down in the Sonoma County wildfires this October. My parents sold this house three years ago and moved to a town not too far away. This is the first time I've been back. This pool looks a lot smaller than how I remembered it. Wow. For many years, this short strip of neighborhood was our entire world. Now the street is lined with burnt cars and melted lampposts. It's hard for me to remember what it had been. So this is the pathway to get to the front door. My parents put this fountain in. And, uh, and then right over here would be the front door. Uh, over here the dining room, and you can kind of see the laundry room because you can see the, the washer and dryer. I'm looking for something, a souvenir yeah. to take from the wreckage. Let's see, got a broken glass. So, our pool. Standing in the rubble of my front porch, both levels of the house have been reduced to about two feet of ash. Wow, it's funny how small the property looks, you know, when you can just see through it. All the trees I had planted are either gone or charred to a sheen black. Doesn't look like the treehouse made it either. It was a big treehouse that we built with my dad and brother right down there. This is new. There are secret spaces I had left my initials. The shelves in the linen closet where my brother and I used to play, and in the rough shingles of my roof outside my bedroom window. All of it gone. Because it was a physical just place that my childhood kind of lived. Uh, I liked just knowing it was here. And right in the center here is the fig tree. And the fig tree has a cool story. Looks like, I can't tell if that's gonna survive or not. <laughs> but the story behind the fig tree is that um, my whole family immigrated from Italy, and when um, my dad bought this house, my grandpa said that he needed to make it more Italian and remind him of home. Um, every Italian needs their fresh figs all the time. So he planted us that fig tree right there. It grew maybe a foot and a half and died, and it was just this little tiny stick in the ground for years. And then my grandpa passed away, and within the month, it started growing again. Eight or nine years after just being a dead stick in the ground, it just started growing. And then spring came and it just shot up and it got up to, you can see, like 30 feet in the next couple of years and finally started producing figs. So we always said that 
he was living with us in the fig tree. So those were our roots to Italy, physically and, <laughs> and metaphorically. And uh, so we, we tried to actually transplant that tree. I've found the souvenir I wanted. I break off a blackened and fragile branch. It has two small figs, shrunken, gray, and hardened to the wood, with a single yellow leaf that's singed only on one edge. I don't know if the tree will survive, but I'll keep the branch and the memories. Chapter 2 The Brink I would say keep your head down. I would say be careful. I would say that self-preservation is your utmost responsibility. Because until you can come out in a safe and open and caring environment, the system that you're growing up in is designed to destroy you. So you may have to keep your head down. And it may be the thing that drives you to the brink. The unthinkable brink. I have known Kimberly for eight years. She taught photography at my high school right outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. There was something about her I was drawn to. I felt like she saw things in me I didn't know were there. When she came out as intersex and transgender, I realized why we had been pulled into each other's orbits. We were both outsiders. We were both Mormon and queer and struggling. We regard same-sex marriage as a particularly grievous or significant, serious kind of sin that requires church discipline. Well, the number one killer of Utah's kids is suicide, according to new numbers from the state health department. And there's no definitive reason for this abrupt rise in suicide among Utah youth, but there are many pointing to Utah's religious culture. Heidi Hatch. Please don't let this be a summer of more gay suicides. Please make a space for your gay members. Please tell them they are okay and they are made in the image of God. There's no way to get an accurate count of LGBT suicides in the Mormon community, but we do know that youth suicide rates in Utah, where a majority of the populace is Mormon, have skyrocketed over the past decade. From 2006 to 2014, the rate more than doubled. In 2008, a proposition called Eliminates Rights of Same-Sex Couples to Marry, or Prop 8 for short, was put on the ballot for California state elections. 
The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS for short, publicly announced its support for Prop 8 in a letter read in every congregation in California. The letter encouraged church members to, quote, do all you can to support the proposed constitutional amendment by donating of your means and time, end quote. LDS members contributed over $20 million, half of total donations supporting Prop 8. Language and rhetoric has softened now in 2017, but for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the overwhelming message was that these kids are damaged, these kids are they're going to hell, they're pedophiles, they're deviants, they're evil, they need to be changed, they need to be fixed. Youth who feel that they're highly rejected by their family members or their community when they come out as being LGBT, um, they're at eight times higher risk of suicide. It is sad to think that, that the culture that is, the culture that I was raised in that taught love, love, love. We have many songs about love in our children's organization called Primary. I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm following in his ways. I'm trying to love as he about love, but that idea, that concept of unconditional love is conveniently suspended when the object of that love falls short of your ideal, of your religious ideal. And those kids on the streets in Salt Lake are the collateral damage. trans Mormons are part of an organization that, in my mind, actively denounces their existence. How do they reconcile that? Growing up Mormon, I was so afraid of my own feelings. I saw my out queer and trans friends get beaten and harassed and kicked out of their homes. I read the Book of Mormon front to back. I prayed to be fixed. Nothing worked. I thought I was broken. My entire life I had been told my only worth as a woman was in me getting married to a man in a Mormon temple and having kids but I didn't want those things. So I'm Dean Stonehawker. I went to BYU and uh, Utah State, um, served a mission in Provo, Utah. As long as I can remember, um, I've been attracted to men. Dean has sandy blonde hair and pale skin. He's in his mid-30s. He's sitting on a folding chair, nervously rubbing his thumbs together. I met Dean at a story-sharing meeting called a fireside for LGBTQ Mormons and Mormon allies. The Mormon Church would call Dean's and any other LGBTQ person's sexuality same-sex attraction. There are strict rules about same-sex attraction. The Mormon Church has used, and still uses, electroshock therapy and pray-the-gay-way tactics. If you experience same-sex attraction, you and God are on fine terms, 
as long as you never act on your feelings and you commit to marriage between a man and a woman. I'm fully active in the church and always have been and uh, intend always to be, to be true to myself is to be true to something that's bigger than this particular experience. All of the dating that I've ever done is uh, women and I have dated hundreds of people. I love the idea of being married to a woman and having children and um, like the LDS ideals of eternity temple marriage, all of those things are things that I really, really want in my life. Just got back into my car after leaving the fireside. That was hard, but good, but hard. I'm, I haven't been to a meeting like that in probably six or seven years. And that's not for lack of people trying to get me to come. I think I try to forget that part of my life, I try to move away from it. It causes me so much hurt. But I think that maybe exposing myself to these sorts of conversations is a good start, probably. My personal testimony is that um, if it is God's plan for a man and a woman um, to have exaltation by being married to each other, that at some point he will make it possible for me to be just as happy in a relationship with a woman as any other man that ever lived. Um, and that he won't even necessarily force me into it until he makes that a possibility. Um, and so it might not happen in this life. Um, and, and that would be hard. But I'm also still completely open to his power to make it possible, even if uh, my attractions don't uh, change in this life, I, I'm pretty sure like we could, we can make things work. I am still completely open um, to the idea that that miracle can happen in my life. It might be more difficult than other relationships. I'm sure it would be, in a lot of ways, um, but I still want it. Dean made me really sad. You know, he's dated. He said hundreds of people. I don't want to disrespect his journey or his process. I think that would be doing a major disservice, but I can't help but be one of those people that is wondering, what if you just followed your attraction? What if you stopped hoping for a miracle and went with what you know? But who am I to say how he should live his life and operate within his identity? To me, that just sounds very lonely. All right. Anyways, going home now. Kimberly Anderson, she, her, hers. I was adopted um, by my adoptive parents at about three months of age, and I was sealed to them in the Oakland Temple. And then I was raised um, in a very true-believing Mormon household. I did the majority of my growing up in northern Utah, which is uh, predominantly Mormon, a small community called Nibley, N-I-B-L-E-Y. I was assigned male at birth through a random act of butchery. Being intersex was something I maybe kind of always knew, but not wasn't ever quite sure, because I had no language. And so I just repressed it and repressed it until there was a point where it kind of, my body forced itself to be discovered. There are ways that men typically behave, especially within Mormonism, and ways that women typically behave, especially within Mormonism 
and I behaved in a very stereotypically uh, female fashion. For mothers and parents whose kids come out as queer to them, either you know, LGBTI or any other alphabet soup letter, there's a lot of different ways these parents are frightened. And the first way that they're frightened is they don't know how to love their kids. They don't know that it's okay to love their kids. It's okay to love your kids in lieu of, in spite of, and right alongside of very strict dogmatic teachings from the Mormon church. The Utah Health Department is looking at recent LDS policy in connection with suicides. And while they have not made a connection... In November of 2015, LDS leaders updated the church's policy on same-sex marriage, declaring it the worst kind of sin and grounds for excommunication. Rape and child molestation aren't even condemned on that level. By late January of 2016, 32 LGBTQ plus Utah teenagers had died by suicide. That's about one suicide every two days. I went to three funerals last summer in 2016 of LGBT children. We can't pinpoint any single act or completion on one single thing. But suicide rates in Utah have skyrocketed since 2008, since hateful rhetoric started in California with Proposition 8. And many, many people are blaming those suicide statistics on altitude and all kinds of other things. And very few people in Utah have the integrity to look inward and see the overwhelming, overwhelmingly clear cause is um, hate and intolerance. I see the streets of Salt Lake City riddled with homeless youth. 60% of them are LGBT+. In a community that says, love thy neighbor. In a community that says, go after the one sheep. In a community that says, um, love one another. In a community that professes to be followers of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, but in that moment of pure action, they fall desperately short. I asked Kimberly what she would say to the kids who feel trapped, the kids who feel afraid, the kids who think they're broken. I would say to them that you, there are millions of people just like you who also did the same thing that you're, that you're challenged with, keeping your head down and staying safe out of self-preservation, and that that can be done until the moment is right for you. That story was produced by Elizabeth D. If, for example, well, I'll be personal about this, when I was going to school, a school not very unlike this one, though, not as pretty. James Baldwin, speaking to students at Castlemont High School in Oakland, 1963. I began to be bugged by the teaching of American history. 
I began to be bugged by the teaching of American history because it seemed that that history had been accomplished without my presence. And this had a very demoralizing effect on me when I was your age and younger and had a demoralizing effect for quite a few years thereafter. Now, that may seem to be trivial, but speaking now as though I were your educator, as though I were your teacher, my responsibility to you would be to invest you with all of the morale that I could to prepare you for the terrible storm which is called life. Terrible and beautiful. But you must know that it is both. Chapter 3. The Blue Time. Every year in Tromsø, Norway, the sun goes down on November 27th and doesn't come up again until January 16th. Fifty days. Producer Stephanie New brings us this story. Winter. The sun sets early and the nights are long. Some people get the blues because the days are shorter and colder. But for the residents of Tromsø, winter means not seeing the sun for two months straight. Tromsø is a Norwegian city on an island in the Arctic Ocean. At 70 degrees latitude, it's located well within the Arctic Circle, which means it experiences something called the polar night, a period in the middle of winter when the sun doesn't come above the horizon for 50 days. So I grew up hating winter. So I'm from New Jersey originally, and I actually, part of the reason I went to school in Atlanta, Georgia, was to get away from the winter. This is Carrie Leibowitz, a PhD candidate for social psychology at Stanford University. So I was definitely nervous for the winter there, um, but I sort of told myself, you know, it's only for 10 months. I could do anything for 10 months. In 2014, Carrie moved to Tromsø to carry out research under the Fulbright program. And it really didn't help that everyone I told that I was moving there, their reactions were sort of like, I could never do that. I would be so depressed if I went there. In winter, less sunlight can lead to higher rates of depression. The winter blues aren't just a general feeling. There's actually a clinical name for them, Seasonal Affective Disorder, or SAD. I started talking to this professor in Tromsø, Norway, about possible research projects we could do. And when he mentioned that, you know, he was so, so far north, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. You know, maybe we could look at something with Seasonal Affective Disorder there. And he wrote back and was sort of like, yeah, sure, you could, but... You know, just FYI, most people don't find as many differences here as they might expect. In fact, rates of wintertime depression in Tromsø are lower than the national average for Norway. And I started thinking, 
well, that in itself is really interesting, that you live in this place that's so far north that the sun doesn't rise for two months each winter, but you're not seeing really big psychological differences between there and other places in Norway or other parts of the world. So despite the extremeness of their winter, the people in Tromsø are surprisingly happy. People who grew up here in the northern parts of Norway, uh, I think they tackle this much better. This is Jonas. Hello, my name is Jonas, and uh, I work as a Northern Lights guide here in Tromsø. Jonas is Swedish, but moved to Norway for work. As a Northern Lights guide, he actually only comes up to Tromsø in the winter. He's been a guide now for several seasons, but before he got this job, he'd never experienced a polar night. I had heard about the polar night, of it actually being for, for two months here in Tromsø. And I had heard that, you know, some people get a bit depressed. It seems so easy to get depressed in a place with no sun. Imagine waking up in the morning to a pitch black sky. Maybe at first it feels like waking up for an early morning flight or train during that time of day when no one else is up but you. You walk to the bus stop in the dark. The streetlights are on, reflecting off the snow. At lunch, it's still dark out. Maybe the entire day feels like the sensation of coming home after the sun has already set. A day that feels over, whether it's 8 p.m. or noon. And then do that every day for two months. The first few days were not my favorite days. It was kind of horrible, actually. I think if I hadn't had my friends, I think it would have been much worse. I mean, I can't really imagine being alone up here, not seeing the sun. But that still leaves the question. How do the people who live in Tromsø avoid getting depressed? Maybe it's in their lifestyle, how they can handle it. This is exactly what Carrie came to Tromsø to find out. Everyone sort of had their own theories about how people there survive the polar night. So some people said it's people use sun lamps or, you know, these special alarm clocks that make the room light in the morning, cod liver oil supplements. Some people said it's that there's so many... Carrie's research was about how people survive the polar night. But when she finally got to Tromsø, she realized that something about her approach was wrong. In theory, I could have done this research from the U.S., right? Like, I could make an electronic survey, I could send it to people in Norway, I could collect the data, I could analyze the data. But if I didn't actually go there, I would have been asking all the wrong questions. Carrie's research involved surveying people about their attitude toward winter and relating it to other aspects of their well-being. She found that there's no secret trick to surviving the winter. The thing that was coming up most often was that People liked the winter. A lot of people are waiting for the first snow. Uh, when there's a really heavy snowstorm, they know that, okay, in a day or two, there's going to be some really, really good skiing possibilities. So how do you ski in the dark? My friends told me that, yeah, you know, you, you buy a big head torch. They're really strong. They give a lot of light. So I thought that, of course, you're going to be able to see them. And they are really strong. But uh, once you're on the top and you start to go down, <laughs> it is a bit difficult, even with the, the head torch on, on the maximum, uh, to see contours in the snow. 
So you have to go a little bit more on, on the feeling, on, on how the snow will be. So was it scary to be skiing in the dark? No, I think I just put uh, that fear away and it's, it's a little bit too much mixed up with joy. As Carrie was learning about other people's love for winter, she started learning to love it herself. Living in Tromso completely changed the way I view winter. I looked around and saw all these cues in Tromso that told me that winter was something to be enjoyed, like options for sitting outside even in the winter, or people skiing, or children playing outside on the playground every single day of the year, no matter what the weather was like. Carrie found that people in Tromsø who had developed a positive attitude toward winter also scored well on other measures of well-being, like life satisfaction and personal growth. Turns out, loving winter actually makes a lot of other things in life better. She also found that the so-called dark time is actually a time of spectacular color. The literal word for the polar night in, in Norwegian is morketide, which translates to dark time. But many others call it the blue time to emphasize that it's actually not a time of total darkness. There's these beautiful soft colors. Even during the time of the year when the sun doesn't rise, there's still a few hours of what's called civil twilight. The sun is just below the horizon, so you can't actually see it, but the sky is light. It's being so far north that causes Tromsø to have one of the longest, darkest winters in the world. But being this far north also makes Tromsø one of the only places in the world you can see some truly breathtaking things. Like a sunset that lasts the whole day. So there's one day, it was just at the tail end of the polar night, the light was so beautiful. It was like the sky was clear and we basically had four hours of sunset colors splashed across the sky. At certain points in the polar night, the sun hovers just below the horizon, washing the sky with colors. We drove from Tromsø to Grotfjord, which is this tiny fishing village that's about 45 minutes away. And we were driving along the road by the fjord, and we saw this pack of killer whales that was swimming really close to the beach. I cannot believe how close they are. You could literally swim of, that far they're out. They're kind of synchronous, too. The sky is fully pink, looks like it's on fire and there's these whales in front of us and there's these snow-covered mountains everywhere. They are super close. I don't know, that day uh, really stands out in my mind as this combination of the colors of the polar night with the whales and the fjord that I just don't think you could really get that combination of things anywhere else in the world. Oh my God! Ah! <laughs> Even long before the sun rises, in the middle of the polar night, when the sky has already been dark for weeks, Tromsø offers another natural phenomenon that's unique to the north, the northern lights. Because of its latitude, 
Tromsø is one of the best places on earth to see the Northern Lights, and tourists come from all over the world hoping to glimpse them. When they get here, guides like Jonas take them out in pursuit of clear skies. There's one time I came into the shop in the afternoon, and we were looking at the weather forecast, and it looked really tricky. Like we have some really challenging weather conditions tonight. It means that we're going to be doing a lot of driving.、Uh, we started the tour,、uh, and just an hour and a half away from Tromsø, we found a hundred percent clear sky. So normally the Northern Lights is like an arch going from east to west, but that night, like the Northern Lights was just above us and just spreading out like an umbrella in all directions. Oh my God! Look at that. That's huge. <laughs> oh my God! Oh my! Can you guys see the pink? Where's the music? Where's the music?、Oh. To be honest, what makes me come back here、uh, for the winter? Is is the beauty of the place. When I see dancing northern lights,、uh, I have butterflies everywhere in my belly.、Uh, and you know, I've seen northern lights dance many times, but still, it just it just fills me up with joy. And、um, I I cannot really、um, I cannot really explain why. It it just does. <laughs> Stephanie produced that story with help from me, Jet Hayward. But we all rushed out onto the porch, and we all looked at each other aghast. And of course, the the silence of the morning was so exquisite. It was April, and of course, it was lilacs, and it was roses, and it was redwoods over there. Beautiful, glorious morning, just sunrise. And then we could hear the voices of other people who had run out of their houses. Most people have the feeling, especially when they've watched the movies about earthquakes, that、uh, things racket and roll as if you were crossing the Channel on the third of February. As a matter of fact, it's a rather quiet performance. There's a deep, earthy sound. That's subterranean, very、uh, disturbing, but、uh, it's just a matter of a gentle clicking and clacking and rattling. But it's everywhere. Every picture on the wall is going tack, tack, tack. Every little ashtray—I don't think we had them then. I don't think ladies were interested in them. But every little ashtray is going tick, tack, tack. Every plate, every chair, everything movable in the house. Is keeping up that unearthly clatter. Nothing deafening about it. Nothing rocking about it. But the good solid earth, the one thing you've counted on, is throwing you down. This is the novelist Kathleen Norris. Interviewed in 1960 about her experience in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. But there are many ways to tear down a house. Chapter four: 
the misinformation effect. The author Tim O'Brien says that there can be two kinds of truth. There's what actually happened, and then there's the story you tell about it afterwards. This is a story about the second kind of truth. I don't think about this all that often these days. And of course, anytime you're talking about this particular story I'm relating, it gets very meta because it's like I'm talking about a project on the fallibility of memory and I'm reciting that project from memory to you. So this is all very fraught. This is Dr. Loftus. Speaking. I wanted to speak to you about the Lost in the Mall study. We ended up reading Jim Cohn's paper, and I talked that's, to Jim. That's kind of a weird way to enter into it. Uh, you know what I mean? But whatever. Uh, that was fascinating for an undergraduate to have that much, you know, pressure put on him. You know, and sad. What I'm going to do now is explain to you exactly what the study uh, was about and um, ask you some more questions. Alrighty. And I want to again assure you that everything that you've said is normal, okay? Alright. Um, what this study was really about was to create memories. Create memories of items that didn't exist. Like now, one of the One of the... the items in in the memory packet was fictional yeah and i'm wondering if you can tell me which one it was dick o'brien that's not the one what one was it it was the being lost in the mall <laughs> i i was i was a scared nervous transfer student to the university of washington i had just gotten there from shoreline community college where i had gotten an associate's degree because um, because I was a bad student in high school. Been working as a roofer, an industrial engraver, a pizza delivery guy, a video store clerk, grocery store checker. I'd done everything, just about. There was no knowledge of how to do a college thing uh, in my family. I was sort of like, you know, a, a person from the sticks wandering around inside the gated community. Beth's class, Beth Loftus's class, was the introductory class that she taught in cognitive psychology. So that was my very first semester. I taught cognitive psychology, a sort of a large survey class. And I had been doing work on the misinformation effect and I used to give them an extra credit homework assignment. In the past, I said, go out, try to uh, distort somebody's memory with misinformation. I, I put a slight twist on the assignment. I said, you know, and one of the things I've been thinking about is whether you can plan a whole false memory like a memory being lost in a shopping mall. It, it was just one step further than just turn, changing a detail. She didn't offer a lot of guidelines. She just basically said, see if you can make someone remember something. 
Try it out. I remember mainly paying attention to the possibility that I could create a memory in someone for something that never happened. So what I did is I created this, these booklets, a booklet for my mom and for my sister and for my brother. And in these booklets, there were four scenarios and they were all things that had happened to us uh, as a family. I gave them some cover story. I think it was something about, you know, how strong memories are of good things that people did for us. We were pretty poor. We had no money, especially when my brother was about five years old. So a lot of the, the, the stories that I used for the booklet, I remember turning it into Loftus and she's, she said, oh my God, these stories are so sad. For example, the, the, the memory about when we had no money for Christmas, the good deed was that a local church came and gave us a bunch of toys. Another time we had no money to heat the house and we'd gotten some firewood and my dad was gone. And so I was the oldest kid and my mom was sick. And so um, I had to chop all this firewood and I couldn't do it. I was 12 years old and I was out there pathetically in the freezing cold and uh, a neighbor had come over to um, help me chop all that wood. So that was another good deed. And then one of them was the Lost in the Mall story. And the in the Lost in the Mall scenario, there was a kindly old man that finds my brother Chris and leads him back to his mom. What I wanted them to do was to write every day about anything that they could remember about each of these stories. So I gave them these booklets and my sister, I don't think she did it really. Um, and But my, my mother filled hers out and she remembered all of the three uh, things that had actually happened in quite a lot of detail. But she couldn't remember the, the story about my brother being lost in the mall. My brother though, pretty quickly, started really picking up the various things that I'd suggested, like a guy finding him in a red flannel shirt. He definitely remembered those things. And so they turned in their booklets and I was looking at my brother's report and I was like, there it is, holy I got a false memory. Sorry, I, I just cursed, is that okay? Yeah, you can, you can go ahead. So I took, I took my false memory evidence and wrote it up for my five points of extra credit. And I gave it to Beth Loftus, who who sort of flipped out. <laughs> she was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And she said, here's what you gotta do. You gotta go back home, record an interview with him on audio tape, and also debrief him, tell him what you did at the end of that experience. You know, can I pause this for a second? I'm saving this audio file, but I realized I never created a file, so it's all saving into the buffer. <laughs> and I'm feeling like I better save this. So hold on for one second. All right, so yeah, let's let's continue. So anyway, I went back home. My home, where I was from, was about five hours drive away. And I recorded this interview with my brother. Okay. 
The next item is uh, when you got lost at U City in the mall. And boy, he remembered a bunch. Well, I remember I was with you guys for a second, and I think I went over to look at the toy store, the KB toy. Way more and, um, even than he had before. We got lost, and I was looking around, and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now, you know, and then I, I thought I was never going to see my family again. I was really scared, you know. And then this old man, I think he was wearing a blue flannel, came up to me and started you know, saying, are you lost? Are you lost? Do you know where your mommy and daddy is? Can't you find your mommy and daddy? And so he helped me look for him. And then he took me my hand and he just helped me find him. Mm-hmm. And then I remember mom telling me never to do it again. Can you describe the man to me more clearly? He was kind of old. He was kind of bald. And then at the end, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I said, you know, Chris, here's the thing. And then he had a, One of those a things I asked you to talk about. One of the one of the the items in in the memory packet was fictional. Yeah, <laughs> as far as I know, it was actually made up by my psych professor. And he was like, "What? What are you talking about?" And so then I said, "Can you tell me?" And I'm wondering if you can tell me which one it was. Dick O'Brien. That's not the one. And he guessed incorrectly. It was the being lost in the mall. Really? Yeah. I thought I remember being lost. Do you? Yeah. Can you tell me what you remember? You know, I got to tell you, at that moment, I remember this very clearly because I kind of couldn't believe it. Can you tell me what you remember? How do you you feel about knowing that that was uh, fictional? I was sitting there at the tape is rolling. My brother's right in front of me. Um, He's looking perplexed. Well, no, because I thought I I remember being lost and looking around for you guys. Which means Uh, suddenly uh, it just really hits me. that he has completely internalized as real, as a, as a real autobiographical memory, something that my psych professor thought of on the fly. Where were you? Don't you, don't you ever do that? So that's really firm in your memory then. Yeah. And it was easy. This was not a difficult thing to do, I realized all of a sudden. When he guessed incorrectly... Something changed, like the enormity of what I was observing started to sink in. And I remember feeling very nervous. I got, I got suddenly very tongue-tied. But I took the tape back to Beth Loftus, and I remember playing the tape for her. And her fa- <laughs> in my memory, her face gets sort of uh, slack-jawed, and she's like, I want other people to hear this. Oh, I remember just being blown away just to see this detail and the guy who rescued him out of flannel shirt. It was just, I don't know, it was amazing. And, and at some, you know, scientific meetings, I actually, you know, played the tape. What she wanted to do was more or less exactly replicate in other families what I had done with my brother. At the time, I had this dream, this crazy fantasy of going to medical school. And one of the things that I wanted to do was get research experience and uh, get into the honors program. Right away, I switched over to doing my honors thesis with Beth Loftus. Loftus gave me this little office space to use. I mean, I got a lot of resources. Can you hear me? 
Yeah. Okay. I remember I was actually sitting doing work when I got a call from Beth Loftus and she said, you should go get a copy of the New York Times. Um, let me just give it a quick read. Yeah, sure. And I said, why? Loftus. And she said, because you're in it. <clears throat> okay. Daniel Goleman for the New York Times, July 21, 1992. A pertinent experiment on the malleability of human memory will be presented next month at the annual meeting of the American Psychological Association by Dr. Elizabeth F. Loftus, a psychologist at the University of Washington who is a specialist in eyewitness testimony. With James Cohn, James Cohn, Dr. Loftus had a close I was proud. Experimental subjects it's just, three I always fail to describe the degree to which that was a shock. I just was a nobody. I was a completely invisible person. I wanted to tell people about it. I got on the phone, man. I was calling people. I got multiple copies. I couldn't afford it, but I did anyway. I was passing them around. And that was something I shortly learned to stop doing. I guess what I'm saying is that it hurt a lot that I was considered someone who was like an enemy of people who had been sexually abused. The reality of repressed memories presented at the 100th Annual Convention of the American Psychological Association, Washington, D.C., 1992, by Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Repression is one of the most haunting concepts in psychology. Something shocking happens, and the mind pushes it into some inaccessible corner of the unconscious. Later, the memory may emerge into consciousness. Repression is one of the foundation stones on which the structure of psychoanalysis rests. Recently, there has been a rise in reported memories of childhood sexual abuse that were allegedly repressed for many years. I have received letters written by people who had been accused of abuse by their children. A 75-year-old physician from Florida wrote, desperate to understand why his 49-year-old daughter was suddenly claiming that he had abused her during her early childhood and teen years. A woman from Canada wrote about the nightmare of being falsely accused of sexual abuse by our 30-year-old daughter. A woman from Michigan wrote, about her 38-year-old daughter. A couple from Texas wrote to tell about their youngest son who had accused them of abusing him long ago. I do not question the commonness of childhood sexual abuse itself, but ask here about how the abuse is recalled in the minds of adults. Specifically, how common is it to repress memories of childhood sexual abuse? Are the memories authentic? Can one inject a complete memory for something that never happened? A question arises as to whether one could experimentally implant memories for non-existent events that, if they had occurred, would have been traumatic. You were held about five or six, right? Yes. It's just, it's very hard for me to believe that someone could plant a memory so vivid as the one I, I recalled that day. 
Here was a girl who clearly described repeated sexual abuse at six years old, apparently forgot it ever happened, and then seemed to bring back a memory of it when she was 17 years old. Could someone's brain bury a painful memory of childhood abuse and then recover that memory later? It's a question that saw a psychologist named Elizabeth Loftus enter Nicole's life. I don't study when people forget. I study the opposite, when they remember. The study started gathering a reputation for something that was pretty evil. Like like not just ill-advised, but but like evil. Could someone's brain That's Elizabeth bear like I was, I was doing a kind of psychological violence. I started to get these sex abuse cases. You know, that was an intense place to be at the time. Because people were being accused. I mean, there were death threats to her lab at one point. I mean, I had no idea how bad it was going to get then. I went on a date. I was sort of smitten, you know, I was I was lonely or whatever. I don't know. God knows what. And uh, we're starting to talk about things. And she asked me what I'm doing. And I mentioned that I'm doing this honors thesis. And she goes, oh, my God, you're that guy. You're doing that study. That's horrible. And so that blew up. And that was very depressing. At one point, I got some kind of award, too. I can't remember what it was. This woman who was there comes up to me, and she literally, she goes, are you the guy doing that awful memory study? (laughs) And then I remember leaving the thing, and she was right there at the door when I left, and I was sort of stuttering, and then I, I, I walked on. And I was walking through campus, and I noticed, I kept looking behind me, and I noticed she was she was actually following me and that's when i started to have that lightheaded fear feeling is this really happening because it just felt so surreal um and i was wondering if i might that might be my last day alive at that point i started realizing that i needed to be secretive about it and this was really painful because it was just another it was another layer of secrets for me. Here's the thing. I, I didn't know what in the heck I was doing. You know, he was an undergraduate, inexperienced at research. But Loftus was you know, super busy. She was gone a lot of the time. I was getting calls and letters. And after I started to get involved in these other civil cases. But I, mean, I, I couldn't could, ask for any help. I, from anyone, because if I asked for any help, that would reveal me as an incompetent person who didn't belong in college. You know, I didn't realize that he was having these kinds of difficulties. So I kept everyone in the dark to the extent that I could. He was not making progress. It even got to the point where Beth would call me up and say, hey, why isn't anything happening? Gosh, the stress got so great. I remember... I sort of stopped sleeping. At the end, I remember giving my honors thesis talk and I was embarrassed and it was horrible. And I remember sort of walking out of that and getting Beth to sign the little document that said that I got my honors thesis and just abandoning the project. I just bailed. 
And when I stopped working on the memory study, oh my God, it was like, ah, it was like salvation. It felt so nice. And I stopped talking about it with people. I sort of started trying to, you might say, repress it. (laughs) The thing is about Beth Loftus is it's not that she doesn't feel the stress of these things. It's just that she's also really committed to the work. I think I've always been concerned about the falsely accused. You'd see her going through the stress of the work she was doing. You know, when I pick up the newspaper and read about an accusation. And at the same time, she'd just keep plowing forward. I know that many people around me are saying, oh, that monster, he did it. And I'm often thinking, I wonder if this is a false accusation rather than a true one. I mean, even even in college, I was on a whatever honors committee or something and uh, sort of wanted to give people a second chance even when they'd done something bad. Really? We have to expel them? Can't, can't we? You know, is there something, you know, a little less drastic? People jump to conclusions that if you make a big mistake or you say something different, you're lying. You know, I wish that it had happened differently. Um, I wish that I had been able to go to Beth Loftus and tell her how insecure and clueless I felt. But this is not a lie. I mean, it, 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 it's like an honest lie. I wish that Beth had been around more. There are all kinds of ways in which I wish that it had turned out differently, but I do feel proud of the idea now. My brother eventually in high school took a psychology class and he shows up in his own psych textbook. My sister was went to college after me and she was in one of her classes. And uh, There are now a, a collection of these lost in the mall studies. A study from the University of Tennessee, a study in Canada. In the last 10 years, we've planted false memories that you got sick eating a particular food as a child. It's very meta. Here I am recounting all of this story about the experience of doing this study, and I'm sure that if Beth Loftus were sitting here next to me, contributing to the, the, the tale, the telling of the story. It's amazing that you're this, um, you know, you're this interested <laughs> in this little, this little bit. We'd have a very different take on, on what it was like or what was happening at the time. Maybe not. <laughs> But that's just the nature of memory. Right? So in the book, The Myth of Repressed Memory, you you come back to this phrase that you, you borrow from Tim O'Brien, which is this difference between the idea of the story truth and the happening truth. Yeah, do you still do you still think about things that way? Like is that Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people have their stories. Like, do you not tell those same stories to yourself, knowing that those aren't true? We don't get caught in all the mistakes we make. The Myth of Repressed Memory by Dr. Elizabeth Loftus Happening truth is the indisputable black-and-white reality of at such-and-such-a-time, this happened, and this, and then that. Story truth is the colorized version, breathing luminous life into the inert shell of the past. 
but there is a hitch. We become confused, and where the happening truth leaves off, and the story truth begins, because the story truth, which is so much more vivid, detailed, and real than the happening truth, becomes our reality. We begin to live our own stories. Jim Cohn is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. This story was produced by Kathy Wong, Dylan Cunningham, and Jet Hayward. And finally, this is where it begins to be difficult, the measure of one's dignity depends on one's estimate of oneself. It really does not depend, as so many people in this country now seem to believe, on someone else's estimate. It depends, first of all, on what you take yourself to be, what your real standards are, what you think is right, what you think is wrong, what you think life is all about, what you think life is for. Knowing your bitterness and not trying for a moment to pretend it is not justified. I would yet have to suggest to you that the problems that you face, you will have to make them personal, since it is through your sense of your own history that you arrive at your identity. And no one has ever arrived at a sense of his own identity without it. This is why ancestors are important. If I may now be brutal and rude, but I mean this, and you must think about it. If you remember that everything that you will do all your life, and everything that you will say, reveals you, what I call you, doesn't say anything about you, or very rarely, but what I call you says everything about me. Chapter 5, The Jane Collective. It was just like a powder keg. It was ready to go off. We were so foolish that we weren't even afraid of getting caught. I was 20 years old. I was a, really a kid. I was scared to death. We all were. We were all scared. None of us wanted to go to jail. If we're at risk, we're all at risk. It was time. You know, it was just time. May 3rd, 1972, in fact, the Chicago police from a precinct that we did not work in busted us. I got into the room and I said, these are the police. You do not have to say anything. They were furious and they arrested me. There were women screaming. There were women yelling. They asked us, what are you in for? And we said, abortion. And they said, ooh. We'll hear arguments in number 18, uh, Roe against Wade. In the absence of abortion or legal medically safe abortions, women often result to the illegal abortion. And in fact, if the woman is unable to get either a legal abortion 
or an illegal abortion in our state, she can do a self-abortion, which is certainly perhaps by far the most dangerous. I really felt that abortion rights were the front line of women's rights because women were literally were dying. Jean Gallitzer Levy, I'm 66 years old. When I was 20, I was a member of the Abortion Counseling Service. Women were dying from black alley abortions, but they were also dying because they were denied basic medical services that should have been available. Women would go to the hospital with natural miscarriage. And because there was such a stigma to abortion, they would be turned away. Women died of miscarriage during this period. It was appalling. I was a college dropout. So I was single, I was adrift, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life or what I was gonna do. So my friend Nancy, who was in the abortion counseling service, asked if I was interested. At the meeting is where I really found out what was going on. We were a varied group. There were young housewives, people who were older, college students. Everybody coming into the service was trained as a counselor. At meetings, we would choose women to counsel. There were index cards that were passed around. And you would pick a woman, you would call her, you would set up a time for her to come over, give her a cup of tea, you know, like you would host anyone. And then we would explain what the procedure was. We had borrowed two apartments. And one place would be the front, and that address was given out to the people who were going to come through. The women who were going to have abortions would be picked up by the driver. I became a terrific driver. I would just randomly get whoever's car was being used that day. I took on being a treasurer, which kind of grew out of being a driver. Drivers collected the money. Um, we charged $100 because we needed about $50 to break even on the medications, on the supplies we would need. And we took anything including nothing. So I would pull over. I would say, it's time to pay me. And, you know, I'd just take the money and shove it in my pocket. I never counted it. I didn't care. I met or cemented friendships that are still central to my life. And I made decisions about myself and my identity that really were, I became who I am. It was enormously empowering. What would happen, you know, this woman would come in, she had this terrible problem, which was, which had the potential to make a complete mess of her life. You know, what she saw in front of her was disaster. And in 20 minutes, that was gone. That mess, that disaster that was sitting right here in her life, was gone, and her life was in front of her. It was enormously empowering. And for many, many women in the service, it was the first time they'd really taken control of their lives. 
It just felt great. Abortion Counseling Service was a context in which to put my ideas about how society should be. So yes, of course it was a politicizing situation, no two ways about it. My name is Martha Scott. Um, I live in Chicago and have lived here many, many years. Moved here, and in the course of my uh, college experience, met the man I was going to marry. And I thought about uh, moving on and going to graduate school, but that didn't happen. I instead got pregnant right away after graduating. <laughs> I really should have waited. I mean, uh, should 20-year-olds have four children under the age of five? No, probably not. It was probably really stupid. But, you know, you make the best of it that you can. You make friends. You're, you're charmed by your kids. You try and deal with the fact that a lot of it is really boring, you know? Oh, because kids are really boring sometimes. This is really boring. I am tired of telling you to put on sunscreen. But ultimately, it's kind of wonderful. Oh, you, you, you know, you participate in this thing that people have been participating for millions of years. I don't regret having kids any at all. I was a counselor at the Abortion Counseling Service when I had my first abortion. And then uh, much later on, I had an abortion again, and that was done by a woman I knew. Well, I had four children, one of whom was severely disabled, and I felt this is what I can handle. You know, this is the fifth child. That really seemed excessive. Relieved. Relieved. Yeah. It's not an easy decision, You're, you know, and that's true for a lot of decisions. Uh, but I feel, felt relieved. It should be just a normal possibility. It's not what you necessarily choose first, but uh, if, in fact, it's, it's what you need, it's what you need. Well, people always wanted to tell you about their own experiences. And, and you know, and sometimes they were wonderful stories. I just remember this one woman who had a, uh, a tattoo on her butt that said, property of me. And I said, this one's unusual. She said, well, it used to say property of zip, but this son of a bitch... <laughs> I don't want anything to do with it. So she was having an abortion. Uh, and I thought, well, now there's a story for you, you know. When you see yourself as a person who is extended around a family, then if you do political work, then you see yourself as a person extended around a much larger entity. Or you're living in a way that maybe makes a difference to the world. That changes you. We were pretty ordinary people. Smart, competent, whatever, but pretty ordinary. And we did a very extraordinary thing. And we did this extraordinary thing because we had a goal and a vision and a group. I'm Judith Arcana. Um, I'm a writer, a teacher, and of course, I'm a Jane, which is why we're talking together today. I got involved because in the summer of that year, 1970, I thought I was pregnant, my period was very late, and I knew that at that time in my life, having a child would be terrible for the child and not good for me either. And so I thought, okay, I, I'll have to get an abortion. And um, one of the people that I thought of to ask was a medical student in Chicago. And so I called him up. He said, everybody here says, call this number and ask for Jane. 
I called the number. A woman called me back. She said her name was Jane. Turns out, of course, it wasn't. Everybody said that. Soon I was one of the people saying that on the phone. She said, you should have a pregnancy test, which, of course, had never occurred to me. As it happened, I was not pregnant. It was just this very, very late period. And so I called her back to say that I wouldn't need an abortion that time. And she said, we're taking in new people in the fall, and it sounds like you might be interested. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think I am. By the turn of the year was when we also began to learn medical practice. I started to lean on our guy. Teach us, teach us, teach us. And little things started to happen. He would let us come in to assist, which really meant in the beginning, sit there beside the bed, because it was in somebody's apartment. You know, there was no operating table. Sit down, hold her hand, stroke her brow, give her some water to drink, whatever, you know, to be comforting. And so the first time... I was allowed to come in, blew my mind. I, I just thought, wow, look at this. Um, I remember very clearly, when I was in high school, I had been a nail biter. And of course, was constantly being castigated by the older women in my life. So it was a big deal for me to grow the fingernails. And he said, cut those fingernails off. And I said, like, whoa, you know. Now, we didn't have the long discussion because there's a woman lying there, of course, but he said, you're going to have to put one hand on her belly and hold the top of her uterus through her stomach and gently push it down. You can't be hurting her with your fingernails. And I thought, okay, that's it. Cut them off immediately that very night. It was constant. We did this every week, several days a week. Dozens of women came on those days for abortions. That's what had to get done. I was absolutely drawn to it. Like I said, I walked in, I saw it, I thought, whoa, this is the real deal. Look at this. And also, I think there was an element of learning to do and be competent at something that was important and valuable in women's lives. That was enormously important to me. I felt proud of myself. Of course, now we are practicing medicine without a license. Because, of course, when abortion is illegal, it's not medicine. Actually, what it is is felony homicide, which is very scary. May 3rd, 1972, in fact, the Chicago police from a precinct that we did not work in busted us. So I was working the front. I was sitting and talking to a woman who was very nervous. She had come with her sister. It turned out that she was the person who had turned us in. I really resent that. Later, I heard a knock at the door. So I went down the corridor and opened the door. And there were the two tallest men I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and all I remember is seeing them. And then I turned around and I walked down the corridor in front of them without saying anything to them. I got into the room and I said, these are the police. You do not have to say anything. They were furious and they arrested me. And then we were taken to 26th in California where we were locked up for the night. 
I spent the night in a cell with Judy Pildes, who is now Judith Arcana. Bless her heart. The walls of the cells were metal sheeting, and there was all this um, sort of wind, cold, semi-moist air that made it very uncomfortable. And the cells had uh, dirty little sinks in the corner. I can picture the sink because, so here I am this nursing mother, okay? So I thought I would be home by five or six o'clock and then I would nurse the baby again, but I wasn't. So my breasts are filling, filling, filling. So I milked myself into the sink, which is why I remember the dirty little sink. Yeah. And that was the moment in my life that I learned that actions have consequences. It's a good lesson, (laughs) but it was very dramatic. (laughs) If I thought I knew how the system worked, now I knew how the system worked. I think it must have been the arraignment. My father was the one who was driving me home from court. Now, mind you, at this point, I'm 28 or 29 years old. I'm married. I have a tiny child. I've been arrested. My dad says, you know, your mother had an abortion. And I was just blown away, not because she did, but because I said, no, dad, I didn't know that. Nobody ever mentioned that. And of course, I mean, if she had lived and if she had been the mother who raised me, she may very well have talked to me about it. Needless to say, I'll never know. So my dad told me the story of my mother's abortion. They were uh, 20, 21 when they got married. It was the Depression. They were living with parents. He was very dear. I loved it. I mean, I don't wish unwanted pregnancy on anyone. (laughs) Never in a million years would I. However, I loved the fact that this work that I was doing could have been. I can't believe I feel all these years later, but it still makes me choke. Um, I could have been of use to my mother, my own mother, who was so young. Law and justice are not the same thing. There are many unjust laws. There always have been, there always will be. So I am not one who respects the law. I cite, of all people, Bob Dylan, who is just a jerk about women, but he's no dummy. (laughs) And he's got this line, to live outside the law, you must be honest. Now, I don't know what Dylan meant, but what it means to me is that when you choose to break the law, you must behave righteously. You must be breaking the law for a reason that is of value. The service was an enormous influence on my development as a human, and certainly, of course, as a woman. I was an at-home mom for 25 years. Being a mother is really important to me. I wanted to be a mother, and I was, but I got to choose when, and I got to choose how. As a result, I was able to have the children I wanted 
and raise them the way I wanted to. While I have had two abortions, neither of them were from ignorance. The point is that you, as someone who doesn't believe in this, have really no reason to tell me, who does feel it's appropriate, that I can't do it. You have your own choices. Those are legitimate choices. Good luck to you, should you be pregnant for the fourth time or tenth time and you don't want to have that baby. Your, your point of view does not impinge on, should not impinge on mine. And I'm not telling you to have an abortion, and you shouldn't be telling me not to. January 22nd, 1973, would be an historic day. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision... In this instance, the Supreme Court has withdrawn protection for the human rights of unborn children. We thought, well, this is a, this is a battle we've won. No, of course, it's absolutely not true. Mr. Trump, your reaction, and particularly on this issue of late-term partial birth Well, abortion. I think it's terrible. Uh, in the ninth month, you can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb of the mother. I would not have expected this the assault that's going on on women's health care. We're looking at an assault on birth control, on basic preventative care, on health care for anybody who can't sort of circumvent repression. The House is moving forward with a plan to ban abortions after 20 weeks. It, uh, it's unbelievable. I would not have expected this. I thought we had gotten past it. You know, I've been participating in the March for Life for years, and there's one thing that had always struck me, and that is the vigor and the enthusiasm of the pro-life movements. It isn't about population, it isn't about fetuses, it isn't about any of that stuff. It is really about controlling women. The fewer options women have, the less control they have. Women who have control are kind of threatening to the people who make these decisions, I guess. I mean, nobody wants to give up their power. What do I hope will happen or what do I expect to happen? I expect things not to change very much. But what I hope will happen is that there will be a whole new generations of people who want to see things change in a way where women are treated uh, in a more equal way. I don't see women sitting down and saying, okay, do what you want. I think women are going to be the backbone of the resistance. This is a generation of women who were consciously told they could do anything, they could have anything, they, they were human beings. And then in every kind of subtle and not so subtle undercurrent, they were told the opposite. I think we're sitting on another powder keg. That story was produced by Hannah Nguyen. At its most basic, surviving is just remaining, continuing to exist. But the act of self-preservation forces us to define what version of ourself is worth preserving. To survive, you have to figure out who you are or who you're willing to be.
State of the Human is created by the Stanford Storytelling Project. This episode was produced by Kathy Wong, Dylan Cunningham, Elizabeth D., Melina Walling, Hannah Yin, Stephanie New, Alec Glassford, Bella Lazareski, and me, Jet Hayward, with help from Jackson Roach, Jake Warga, Christy Hartman, Sam Greenspan, and Jonah Willingans. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, the Program in Writing and Rhetoric, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. You can find links to all the music and archival sound you heard in this episode, and listen to every other episode of State of the Human at our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Das ist